Romans chapter 5. We will begin to slow down at this point in the book of Romans. We've been taking some rather large sections at a time because I wanted to keep uh, everybody of the overview of what was going on. But as we come into these 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see that they are extremely rich in theology, extremely rich in, in things that we need to know and understand as a believer. So we're going to be pausing and slowing down a little bit. We may only get through two verses today. I'm going to try to make it through five, but we'll see, we'll see how things go. Um, this, you know, these coming chapters, five, six, and seven, they're, they're some of the most, most, the richest chapters in all the scriptures. I mean, they're just some, they're just, Paul does an incredible job of explaining salvation, explaining, you know, the forgiveness of sin, explaining justification and sanctification, all those Christian words that we can throw out there and go, well, what do they really mean? Well, you'll know what it means after five, six, and seven. You're going to see that it's really, really rich. So we, we will be slowing down, but just by way of review, we started in chapter 1. We've made it as far as chapter 5. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul proved that all men were guilty before God. All men were under sin and that we're in need of God's righteousness. We, he proved that we're hopelessly lost without Jesus. And then as we came to, uh, he, and he also went on to say later in chapter 2, it didn't matter if you were Jewish, if you had the law, it didn't matter if you were a Gentile, it didn't matter if you were a legalistic or maybe you were a good Christian versus a bad Christian, all of us stand in the same place before the Lord and it's as a sinner. It didn't matter if, our, if, if we lived a good life, it did, none of those things matter. Paul very clearly proved the point that we are all sinners before the Lord. And in chapter 3, we saw Paul defend his position. And in chapter 3, he went into using Old Testament scriptures. One of, the, one of the greatest is, we read, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he quoted Isaiah, and he quoted the Psalms, and he quoted some other areas of scripture just to really use the, the Old Testament scriptures as well to, uh, to, pr- to prove this standing that we hold before God. But Paul didn't stop there. After he proved to us that we were all sinners and we were all, you know, fallen short of God's glory, he went and told us about how to, how to have a right standing. He went and told us how God had intervened and through God's righteousness, he had made this way of justification that we could be justified before the Lord. God's righteousness, he, he told us, was apart from the law. It was apart from our works, apart from our good deeds, apart from anything that we could possibly do. And it came through faith in Jesus Christ, and it was available to all and on all who believe, he said. By faith, you must believe that Jesus' death on the cross is what puts you in right standing before God. That's justification. That's what Paul told us. Where we say his blood, the blood of Christ, that's the propitiation. That's the payment for my sin. And Paul has done this in great lengths. Then in chapter 4, Paul said, well, I'm going to give you two real-life examples of that. Because I'm going to show you that salvation comes from faith and not by the way that you live your life or that you uphold the law. And he used Abraham as the first one. And he went back and said, Abraham was justified. Because he, Abraham was righteous because he believed God, rather. So before the, the, before the covenant of circumcision, before anything happened, he believed God. It, it, it was something he uses before the law was ever given to the Jewish people. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. It was, and Paul was showing us that that came through faith alone and not through the works because it happened before. And he went on to use David. He said, you know, he he used David as an example in some of the Psalms that David had wrote. And we know that if anybody deserved judgment, it was David. After all, murder and adultery. And you study his life and you realize, yes, he was a great man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. But the sin was very clear in his life as well. And the Bible doesn't fail to show us his shortcomings. So David's justified not by the way that he lived his life, but by faith in God. And Paul's making this example. And as we come to the end of chapter 4, hopefully we realize that this morning... 
we are not justified by the works that we've done. We are not justified by our outward actions. That we are not justified by the laws or the rules that you keep in your life. You're not justified because you think that you're a better believer or a better Christian than your neighbor or the person sitting next to you. You're not justified by the church that you belong to or by the family tree that you were born into. It only comes through Jesus Christ. We come to the place where we realize these things could never bring us to that righteousness before God. I could no way, in no way be right before God. I could no way be justified before God based on any of those things. And now in chapter 5, as we open up chapter 5 this morning, Paul's going to say to us, justification certainly brings salvation, but that's not all it brings. It's going to bring, I'm going to show you the benefits. Paul's going to speak of the benefits of justification, how they affect your life today, what it means today. And we're going to pick up in chapter 5. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace, into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we see the word therefore, it reminds us to look at what came before it. What is it there for? We look back and we realize that Paul's reminding us of all the things that he's talked about to this point. He's re reminding that as a result of our justification by faith, notice what he says, therefore having been justified by faith, he takes that same point that he's been showing us previously. I want to sum it up for you. Having been justified by faith, he says, you get some benefits. There's some things coming your way. That's not, you know, as if, as if we need anything else. Justification, being righteous before God should be enough, right? That if I could stand before a holy God and he could see me as righteous or see me as justified, and what does justified mean? The easiest way to understand it? Justified never sinned. That means if I'm justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, I can stand before God, and when he looks at me and when he looks at you, he sees you as justified just if you'd never sinned. That's how he sees you when you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as if we should need anything else at all, but all of our sins are gone, they're not held against us, but... It's almost like that infomercial. But wait, there's more. There's more. I'll give you two for 19. No, he doesn't say that. But he says some things that are added on, some things that we get by being justified, by being right, by the blood of Jesus Christ, being right before God. Notice he says we have peace with God. He says we have access to God. He says we can stand in the grace of God. We have eternal hope in which we can rejoice. If we didn't get any of those things, it would be enough the fact that we're righteous before God. But look what he says. He says, you have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we, that's I, that's you, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, don't make the mistake. This is not the peace of God. This is, he, Paul's not talking about the peace of God here. So, you know, you remember in, in Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God. That's different. Paul is here, he's speaking of peace with God. He's speaking of peace with God. And there's a difference here. That word for peace, this is what it means. And if you go back to the, the verb of it, it means this. To bind together that which has been separated. To bind together, to take two things that are separated and bring them together and bind them together. Now, with that definition, definition in mind, think about it. Peace with God. 
We have, at one point, we were separated from God. Our sin is what separates us from God. It separates us. Once we believe on Jesus Christ, we come into this position of justification before the Lord, and that in turn brings us peace with God. We took our lives, ourselves, that were separated from God, and then we become bound together. This is not a peaceful feeling he's talking about. This is not, oh, I feel the peace of God upon my life. No, this is saying, I was once at war with God, and now I'm at peace with God. I was once at war and now I'm at peace. Before you knew Christ, you were separated from God. No hope without God in the world. Nothing. You were headed for judgment. And now once you believe in Jesus Christ, you become connected to him. You become connected with God. No longer separated. If you're here this morning and you don't have the faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, if you think, well, I'm not sure I believe that. I really don't understand that. I'm not sure what I think about it. I want you to know something. You're at war with God. Because if you're not at peace with God, you're at war with God. You say, well, no, no, Rob, that's not me. I'm not at war with God. I just, I just don't know where I stand. No, no, there, there's, you're, not at, you're, you're, you're at war with God. You're not at peace with God. If you're not a Christian, you're not at peace with God. That's the only way that it can happen. By being a believer in Jesus Christ. You're separated from God. Maybe... It's possible that somebody could be separated from God and not even realize it, that you're separated from God. Let me tell you how. Let me give you an example. Most of you guys know before I became a, a pastor, I was a police officer. You ever been driving down the road, and all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror and you see the police car behind you? You go, <gasps> right? You ever have that happen to you? And then all of a sudden you realize the lights are on. And you wonder, how long has he been following me that way? How long has it been? You see, you didn't even know that you were, weren't at peace with the police anymore. You just realized it, but he may have been following you for a long time. Now, I can tell you also, as being the other side of that, being the police officer, sometimes you follow people for a while, and you realize, how are they so out of it? Sometimes I would follow them with my lights on before I hit the siren just to see how far they would go. And you realize they're not paying attention to what's going on around them. You see, that's a funny story, but the truth is somebody here this morning could be doing that exact same thing where God is pursuing them. He's trying to put the lights on in your life and say, pull over. I'm trying, he's trying to stop you from going in that direction. You're going, I don't even know he's behind me. I'm not even, no, I don't even want to look. My, I took my rearview mirror down. I don't want to see it. You see, God might be pursuing somebody this morning that says, hey, I'm apart from God. And he's trying to give you peace with himself. He's trying to make it right. And you're just running away. You're just running away. See, if you're not at peace with God this morning, then you're at war with him. You're ignoring him. You're not paying any attention to him. It's, it's just something that's going on. But notice it's something that happens. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, we receive this peace with God. The moment we believe. The moment we believe. To believe in something is to have that very thing in which you believe alter the way that you live your life. It changes your actions. It's not just... I, I've said it many times. I think we've made a mistake in churches by making belief, I don't want to say too easy, but we've made it too, too commonplace. We have to understand when you say, I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to accept what he did on the cross, I'm going to realize that my sin is paid for. That's going to change my life. I can't just continue in sin like that. I, I'm going to have to change. Jesus is trying to pull me over and readjust my life, put me on a different path. It's going to change what I'm doing. You see, I'm concerned that sometimes in Christianity we've made, we, we've, we've diminished the following of Jesus Christ to simply praying a single prayer and then going on about living your life any way that you want to. 
You can certainly come to know Christ and give your life to Christ in a prayer, but that's the beginning. That's not the end. That's where your life starts in Christ. That's where we must continue. That's where we must run the race. Paul calls it a walk. We must do and live. We're, we're going to change. We're gonna, the Lord's going to move on your heart to change the way that you think, change the way that you live, change, the, change your action. That's when, when we're becoming more like him. So when we stand and we believe in Jesus Christ, we get justification, which means he sees us just as if we'd never sinned. We also get this peace with God. Sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? But wait, there's more. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Through whom also we have access. We have access by faith into this grace. Notice what Paul's saying is we have access to God. You have access to God. And that word for access, it means this. It's the act of bringing somebody to another person. The act of introducing somebody. It's, it's a third party bringing you in and introducing you to somebody. If I were to introduce you to somebody that you didn't know, you now have access to them because I've introduced you. This is a foreign concept to the Jewish people. To those believers that were Jewish, they're looking at this going, no, no, there's no access to God. No, no, you, you don't understand. There, there's no such thing. There, there's no access to God. Up on Mount Sinai, God said, don't let the people come any closer or, or they'll die. Or in the, in, the, in the Old Testament tabernacle, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He had access to God. The people didn't have access to God. They could only come so far. The Jewish people could go farther than the Gentile people. But there was no direct access to God. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that kept the Holy of Holies closed was torn from top to bottom. It was given access to God. You see, maybe we think that God's unknowable. He's a stranger that can't be found or understood. Maybe you think that, can't even really, that God can't really hear you. It's not true. It's not true. We have direct access to God. Talking to God through prayer is not like calling the help desk at work for your computer. You're not going to hear for marriage problems, press one. You know, for unruly kids, press two. You go on from there. God's not like that. The door is always open. Who's the door? Jesus. Jesus is the door. The door is always open. I don't usually do this. I usually summarize scripture, but I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 because I want you to see this for yourself because we're talking about having access to God, having access to the creator, having access to the very one that has predetermined and predesigned your life. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says this. I like pages turning. That's good. It says, Therefore, brethren, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies, that's the place where God would dwell, by the blood of Jesus. How can we enter? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and a living way in which he, that's Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil was torn, his flesh was torn also. And having a high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, he's our high priest. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. 
Paul is reminding us, we're not here in Hebrews, we don't know who the author of Hebrew was, who Hebrews was, some think it was Paul, but here the author's reminding us that God has an open door policy, and the reason that we have access to him is through Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ accomplished, accomplished at the cross. You have access to God, use it, and don't take it for granted. Use the access you have. I can remember as a police officer, it was a rather large department, there was about 2,000 deputies or so, and the sheriff of the county I didn't have any access to him. If I wanted to go talk to him, there was no way for me to go talk to him. He was in a separate part of the building. The doors were locked. You had, my key card didn't give me access to that area of the building. Access was, if I had gone over there and said, I want to go see the sheriff in his office, I'd have swiped my key card and it would have said access denied. There was no access there. I, could, I would have had to call somebody who had access to him, like his secretary, and then ask if I could meet with him. Aren't you glad that's not the way it is with the Lord? You see, we have access to God. That's what Paul's telling us. Go back to Romans. We have access to God. I think that we need to be careful that we're using that access. Make sure we're not just taking it for granted. Do we realize that when we sit down or stand up or whatever posture you choose to pray, you can boldly come into the throne room of God and make your request known to him? Hebrews tells us that also. We don't want to take for granted this access that we have. We have peace with God. We have access with God. We've been justified by faith. And he continues on in verse 2. He says, now we can stand in the grace of God. Look what he says. Through whom also we have access by faith into his grace. Grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're saved by grace, but we can also stand in grace. And this is going to be something important. I want you guys to pay attention. If you fell in a, fall asleep, wake up now. I want you to know this. All right, grace, unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. Okay? Stand. It's a permanence of standing. It means to stand firm, to be immovable. Okay? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can now stand, which means to be permanently affixed, permanently placed in, in what? In grace. In grace, you can stand permanently in the grace of God. So let me ask you it this way. What are you standing in this morning? What are you standing in? What, is it that, what, what, is, what are you standing in? You see, sometimes Christian rec Christians recognize, you know what, I'm saved by grace. But they stand in legalism. Sometimes Christians realize, I'm saved by the grace of God, but I'm standing in guilt and shame. I'm standing in sin I'm standing in whatever it is. Remember, listen, whatever word I can say to draw your attention to what I'm about to say. You are not saved by grace and then preserved by your own efforts for God. You're not saved by grace, then you preserve your salvation by your own efforts. It doesn't work that way. You're not saved by grace and then preserved by the good life that you live. You're not saved by grace and then preserved by the church that you belong to. You're not saved by grace... And then preserved by your good works, by your Bible study, by your morning devotions, by the amount of money that you give away. You're not preserved. Your salvation doesn't somehow shift from, I got it by grace and now I can preserve it with my actions. It doesn't work that way. Paul's saying we're going to stand in grace. But we don't have to stand in grace. That's why I asked the question, what are you standing in this morning? You see, if you think that you're preserving your salvation by doing something right for God, you're making a mistake. And your relationship with God will go up and down based on how you're doing for him. And it'll be based on your opinion of how you're doing for him. Because you don't even have all the full details of what he's doing in your life to be able to work through you. 
You say, Rob, should I quit doing these things? I was going to put some money in the offering box, and now you're telling me I shouldn't listen. If you think putting money in the offering box is going to preserve your salvation, don't do it. It's not worth it. I wouldn't want you to be misled. I'm not saying don't put money in the offering box. Do it because you want to give to the Lord, not because you want to earn your salvation or think that there's something good. Do it because the Lord has given you and blessed you, and you want to bless him back. You want to give back to him. Be a cheerful giver. That's what the heart of the Lord is. Not so that I can earn something, although there is a catch there because God did say, test me on this in Malachi. Test me and see if I don't give back to you ten times what you give to me. But our motivation shouldn't be to earn something, to get something, to do something. Lord, if I do this, then you'll bless me. And the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you know that it's sufficient? Paul, Paul, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. He said that to Paul in his, in his infirmity, in his illness. But do you know that the Lord's grace is also sufficient for you this morning? It's also sufficient for you. It doesn't matter what you did this week, the week before. It doesn't matter the guilt that you carry. You see, if you're carrying around guilt from your previous life, if you're carrying around all this stuff, all this junk, all this sin, all these problems, then you're standing in your sin. You're standing in your guilt. Stand in the grace of God. Where would you rather be? Rob, are you saying that I can lay all this stuff down? Absolutely. You don't have to carry it around. Put it on the cross. Leave it there. Well, Rob, you don't understand what I did this week. I said a bad word. Who cares? Stand in God's grace. Don't go and sin no more, Jesus would tell the woman caught in adultery. Don't keep doing it, but stand in his grace. I'm not saying the consequences will go away for your sin. Those, will, those may follow you the rest of your life, but you don't have to stand in that junk. You can, you can put it aside and go, I'm going to stand in the grace. We're saved by grace, and we need to remember that we need to stand in that grace. Otherwise, we fall to the side of legalism, and we begin to look at what everybody else is doing, and we want to measure ourselves up about how we're doing compared to everybody else. And I can look across the aisle, I can look at my neighbors, I can look at my family members, I can look at another church, I can look at all those things and go, well, what are they doing over there? Oh, I'm more righteous than they are. No, you're not. Righteousness comes from the blood of Christ, and that's it. It doesn't, you can't be more righteous than them. It's impossible. Paul already showed us that we're all sinners. We're all saved by grace. Now the choice is where do you want to stand? For me, I'm standing in the grace of God. I realize I'm not perfect. I realize I'm a sinner. And I, and I know you guys are the same way. So let's stand in grace together and see what the Lord will do with us. When you do that, you're going to find out that it becomes easier to be obedient to the Lord. And you'll realize that your sins... They won't hold you back in a sense where then they just, you fall off the wagon, so to speak. You have the grace of God that will cover your sins. And Paul will address later the question of, well, then should I just keep sinning? Listen, if God's grace is so cool, should I just keep sinning? You know, Paul would say, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? Absolutely not. He would say, certainly not. We'll address that question much later in the section. But we need to stand fast in God's grace. God's grace is sufficient to enable you to stand in the face of any temptation. It's, enable, it's sufficient enough to forgive you for any sin that you've committed. Just think about the guys in the Bible. What about David? Murder, adultery. What about Paul? Paul, murder. You know, no adultery that we know of, but there's certainly murder in his background. We saw it in, in the beginning of Acts with Stephen. You know, God's grace is sufficient for Paul. It's got to be sufficient for us too, right? Stand in it. Don't, don't leave it. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We can stand in his grace. But wait, there's more. We also have the hope of the glory of God. We also have the hope of the glory of God. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, the fact that we have peace with God 
He said, that takes care of your past. You're at peace with God. Don't worry about your past. The fact that you have access to God, that takes care of the present. That's right now. You, got, you have access to God. That's your present. And now he says the fact that we have the hope of the glory of God, that takes care of your future. There it is, past, present, and future all cared for. You got the grace of God, you have access to God, and you have the hope of the glory of God. Should we need anything else? Oh, but we do, we're needy people. Well, you guys, not me. No, I'm kidding. Through whom, we all, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In the future, we will share in the glory of God. Do you look forward to that day? Do you, do you really? I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8. It says this, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Do we look forward to that future with the Lord? Seeing the glory of God. The Apostle John, in the very beginning of John, said this. In verse chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you look forward to that? When you, when you, all right, I'm planning my life ahead. There should be something you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to being in the glory of God. I'm looking forward to seeing him face to face. That's why I'm here. If this, if this wasn't true and I didn't believe this, I wouldn't be here in, in this place. Are you rejoicing in the glory of God, in the future that, that lies ahead of you? You see, sometimes we get sidetracked. We do. Sometimes we're rejoicing in things. You know, I'm, I'm rejoicing in the hope that someday I'm going to get a new car. I'm rejoicing in the hope that I'll get a new house. I'm rejoicing in the hope that I'm going on vacation next summer. I can't wait to go on vacation. That's the future that I'm looking forward to. Not me. I'm looking forward to getting a new husband or a new wife. Or not, not a new one, a husband or a wife. <laughs> not a new one. No. What are you rejoicing for? What is it that you go, I can't wait for the future? What is it that you say, I just, I'm really looking forward to it? What is it? If I had only have kids, if I could only do this, if I could only, then, then I would be rejoicing. That, that's what I'm hoping for. All of those things are good things. Not a new husband, a new wife. All those things are good things, but we need to keep our priorities in perspective because all of those things, the new car will become old, the new house will break down and things will fall apart. The new, the new marriage, it's going to go through troubles. It's not, marriage is work. It takes time. It, you have to learn. All those things are just going to fall by the wayside. They're, they're not going to last forever into eternity. It's all going it's, to, it's, we, where's, where's our mindset? Not that we shouldn't look forward to a vacation. The vacation will end after you come home and you'll have the memories and those are good things. But that shouldn't be where my ultimate level of rejoicing is. It shouldn't be there. If you were justified by faith, then your future is filled with glory. Maybe not here, but in eternity. When you're face to face, kneeling before the throne of Jesus, someday you will fully comprehend the glory of God. Someday we will fully comprehend it. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We can stand in the grace of God. We also have the hope of the glory of God. This only gets better, right? Look at the next verse, verse 3. We're going to make it to verse 5 this morning. And not only that, that's Paul's way of saying, but wait, there's more. 
And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Wait a minute, that's not so good. Knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because, we, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Wait a minute, Rob, you had me. I was good. I was all right, up to that point where it said we have to glory in, I don't even like tribulations. I don't, I don't want to glory in tribulations. What's a tribulation? It's a difficult time, right? It's a difficult season. Here's what it really means. It means something being pressed together. Something that's under pressure, under affliction, under distress. It's the picture to the, to the, to the people in this day. They would think of an olive press. And if you come to Jerusalem, you come to Israel with us next, next spring, you're going to see olive presses, these big old rocks. They would, they would crush these olives and take something and make something useful out of it. And it'd be this huge amount of pressure that would crush these olives to get the oil out of it. So it's, the, it's that. And you say, well, that's, yeah, that's what I feel like sometimes when I'm under tribulation. And he says, yeah, you can glory in that. Well, what does glory mean? It means I can boast about it. I can brag about it. You say, Rob, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't, that, 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 why would I want to boast? Why would I, I want to get out of it as possible. No, no, not as a believer you don't. Because as a believer, you understand that your tribulation is producing something in you. You understand there's value in it. If you don't see and you don't understand who God is, you won't see that God has allowed something in your life to produce something in you. He wants to, he wants to show you something. He wants to teach something. I promise you, as a Christian, or even as a non-Christian, you will experience tribulation in this life. True? Everybody experiences tribulation. The difference is a believer can glory in it. A follower of Jesus Christ can go, yeah, there's something being done here. I'm being pressed. I'm being stretched. I'm being afflicted. There's some reason why. Don't let anybody ever fool you and tell you that following Jesus will never be any difficulty in your life. That's far from the truth. Look at the apostles. Look at the life that they lived. They actually had part of their salvation was, they, do you know that you're going to be afflicted for the Lord? Do you know you're going to be persecuted? Will you still follow? Yes, I'll follow. Will you still go? Yes, I'll go. Jesus made it very clear to us in John 16, He said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me, in him, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You see, if your hope lies in your condition of the world, where you stand here, where you stand financially, where your health stands, where, where you stand, where your career, all, all of that, if that's where your hope lies, it'll be shaken every time, the, every time something bad happens. But when your faith and your hope stands, and I'm standing in grace, I'm standing in Jesus Christ, nothing's going to move me off that. I can deal with illness, I can deal with you know, a loss of income, I can deal with the loss of a job, I can deal with those things because I know that the Lord is allowing that in my life for some reason. Notice what he says. And not only that, but we glory in tribulations knowing. How can we glory in tribulations? Because we know something. We know something. We can glory in tribulations because we know something. We can boast about our tribulation because we know something. What do we know as a believer? Or what should we know? We glory in tribulations knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance. The King James says patience. And perseverance, character, the King James says experience, and character, hope. We don't glory in tribulations because we're in a difficult season. We glory because we know the tribulation is going to produce something inside of us. Something good, something healthy is going to come out of it. What's it going to produce? Look what it says. It says he tells us. Because you can just imagine, Paul, what could this possibly produce in me? He, look, it's going to produce perseverance. And some, some of your translations may say patience. 
It's going to produce patience in us. What is that? It's steadfastness. It's constancy. It's endurance. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to allow you to continue. But here's what it means. If you actually go back to the root word, it means to be under, to remain underneath, to remain under trials in a God-honoring way, to learn a lesson. They're sent to teach rather than attempt to get out from underneath them. You see, as a believer, we look at something in our life and we go, I can learn something from this. There's something going on. I'm not happy about it. But rather than just try to figure out my quickest way to get away from it, Lord, just take it away. Lord, just teach me. Show me. Teach me something, Lord. Show me what it is you're trying to teach me. It'll change the way that you deal with difficulty in your life. Anybody in here ever deal with tribulation? You always ask the question, why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Try asking him, say, show me what you want to teach me, Lord. Teach me. Use this in my life. Use this, use this circumstance, Lord. Show me what it is. Help me understand. Show me, Father. Help me to persevere. I know you're doing something through it, Lord. Show me. It's a much, much better prayer because Paul says that that perseverance, that patience in that tribulation, it's going to produce something in you. He said it's going to produce character. Because you know the tribulation is doing something, you're going to be able to endure it. Because you can endure it, you're going to be able to build your character in it. You're going to be able to build the character. Integrity that has been tried. It's a state of mind which has stood the test. It's been, you've, you've been put to the test and you've passed. This word character, it's used to define the, 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 describe the refining of metals. They would heat a metal up and the, and the dross or the impurities would come to the top. They would scrape it off. And then you do it again, heat it up, and the impurities come to the top. It's a refining process. That's what your life looks like sometimes. So my life has been. That's the Christian life. Refine us, Lord. Make us more like you. Okay, I've got to bring some tribulation. No, not that way. Just sprinkle your pixie dust on me, Lord. Make it all go away. No. You see, as a believer, we need to have the proper perspective. That the difficulties that come upon us, that God can use them to do something in us. And he's going to grow us through them. And then he's going to use them in somebody else's life if we'll allow him to. Because we're not here for our happiness or our enjoyment. We're here for his good pleasure. His good pleasure is why we're here. Godly character is built by learning to trust in God in the face of difficult circumstances. You want godly character? You're going to have to learn to trust him in the difficult times. You have to learn to trust him when you don't know why or when it seems like there's no reason for it or when, when there's no, no logical explanation for it. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Right now you've been grieved by various trials. You say, well, no, Rob, I've been in a trial my whole life. I'm, I'm 75 years old. I've been in a trial for 75 years. That's nothing in the face of eternity. 75 years is nothing in eternity with the Lord. Is if you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to praise, to honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though you, now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, as believers, we have to look beyond what's right in front of us. We have to be able to look beyond our circumstance and our situation and go, what's coming at the end of my faith? What's coming at the end of my life? What's coming beyond? Because we get so wrapped up in what's happening today and we lose the big picture. 
we lose the exact the picture of eternity we lose and think this is it this is all if, if this life is it boy we're all in trouble because it's not a good place we got an election coming up and by the way i don't talk a lot about politics you'll never hear me but please go out and vote exercise your right to vote this is not it it doesn't our, our my faith does not depend on the election next week my standing before God has nothing to do with the election. I'm not so concerned what happens to our country. That's, that's, that's God's hand. That's the leaders. We elect the leaders. That's their problem. My problem is, am I, I'm going to stand before God. My faith is in him. I'm going to stand in his grace. I'm not standing in the government of the United States. Well, I love, their, I love our freedoms, and I love our benefits that we get, and I thank God for them, and you should too. That's not where I find my hope. It's not in them. If they were to take them away, my life would change drastically on the outside, but spiritually it would remain the same. It wouldn't matter. You see Paul saying perseverance in us is producing character. And that character, when it's in us, it's, it's that which gives us hope in the tribulation. You see, it works this way. For the non-believer, tribulation and difficulty will produce hopelessness. There's hopelessness. The, the harder the problem, the deeper the tribulation, the more it goes through it's, it's, they're, 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 where's, the, where's their hope in it? But for the believer, we can look at no matter what situation we find ourselves in and say, there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. What's going on here? Tribulation produces hope in you. How does that happen? Because although you don't know why, you know who. Although you don't know why it's happening, you know who's allowing it to happen in your life. You may not even be able to relate to it or understand it in somebody else's life, but you know that you can encourage them in the Lord. This tribulation in your life, and as you persevere through it, your character will be tried, it'll be tested, and it will be refined. The fact that God is doing something through this difficult situation produces hope in you, and this hope, it will not disappoint you. It won't disappoint you. It will not disappoint you because the love of God has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to you. That's what it says. That's what we just read. And not only that, but also we glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope, it doesn't disappoint us. It will never disappoint you, not the hope in the Lord, because the love of God has been poured out into your hearts. By who? By the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. You see, the real question that lies before us this morning, or the bigger question, is not do we understand these theological truths, but do we believe them? Because you can understand them, but do you believe them? Do you really believe that you're justified by faith before God, that when you stand before him, when he looks down and he sees you and he calls you by name, he sees you just as if you'd never sinned? Do you really believe that you are at peace with God? Or do you think in some way that God's kind of against me because I've lived a bad life or I've made mistakes? Or do you really believe that you have access to God? I often wonder if we really believe that we do anything but pray. If we really believe, and I, and I know that we pray, and Paul says pray without ceasing, but do you really understand that you have access to the Heavenly Father, to your Creator? Don't, don't just take it for granted. Use it. Use it for it. Do you really believe that you can stand in the grace of God? Or do you stand in the guilt of your sin? Or do you stand in the guilt of your shame? Or do you stand in the fun and the enjoyment of your sin? Or do, where are you standing this morning? Are we standing in the grace of God? Do you really believe that you have the hope of the glory of God? Or are we hoping in things of this world? Hoping in things that will perish? Hoping in things that are going to decrease in value? What are we hoping in? Do you really believe that you can glory in a tribulation? 
Do you really believe that when, when I, ne next week, when the phone call comes, when the thing happens, when it takes place, and can you really give God glory in that? You see, you should be able to because you can look and go, I know that my God is bigger than whatever I'm going through. And for whatever reason, there's something I can learn through this. There's absolutely something that I can learn. It's a refining process that the Lord's got me in. It's the very thing which is going to produce the hope within me. You see, as we ask these, as we cover these theological truths, I want you to ask the, yourself the question, honestly, do I really believe these things? Because I want you to answer that question today as we take a few minutes in prayer. Do you really believe that you're justified with God? Do you really believe that you have peace with God? Do you really believe you have access to God? Do you really believe, or where are you standing? Am I standing in the grace of God or am I standing in the junk of my life? Where am I standing this morning? Do you really believe, is your hope in the future with the glory of God? Can you really glory in your tribulation? Maybe this morning you're in a tribulation. Maybe, maybe as I'm talking about tribulation, you're going up there going, he has no idea what I'm going through. You have no clue. I don't, but God does. I, I don't, but God does. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then he's doing something in you. He's allowing it for a reason. He's trying to change you. He's trying to show you something. He's trying to grow. Don't try to get out of it as quickly as you can. Ask him, Lord, what, what can I do? What are you showing me? Change your perspective on it. Take the eternal perspective and say, God, what are you doing? How can I conform? What is it that you're showing me? What are you glorying in this morning? So before we close, as always, let's just take two or three minutes and reflect upon this area of scripture. We only covered five verses. Maybe you need to read it again slowly for yourself. Maybe you need to ask them, you know, am I really justified? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you can't answer, yes, I'm justified, and that's the way that God sees me, it's time to repent. It's time to believe, have faith in Jesus Christ. Go to him privately. Talk to him. Tell him, ask him for forgiveness for your sins. Ask him to come into your heart. Make a commitment to follow him. Not that you'll be perfect, not that you ever join a church, but you're just going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let that happen this morning if it's necessary. And wherever you're at, wherever you're standing, wherever you've been looking to the future for hope and glory, at bare minimum, take the next three minutes and access God because he wants to hear from you. He's been waiting to hear from you. So take the next three minutes and talk to him about what's on your heart. Quietly. This is quiet time in prayer. This is between you and him. Nobody's going to pray out loud. So let's just go before the Lord. Father, we just come before you now. And Lord, have your way in our heart. Lord, we know that your word goes out and it doesn't return void. And my words have been many this morning, Lord, but I know that your word will affect those people and those hearts that it needs to affect. So Lord, would you just minister to your people now in your loving and gentle way.